0: Section 10 of Stories from the Fairy Queen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maya Hansen. Stories from the Fairy Queen by Mary MacLeod. The House of Temperance. After the Pagan Brothers were conquered, and Prince Arthur had recovered his stolen sword, and Gion his lost shield, the two went on their way together, talking pleasantly as they journeyed along. When the sun was near setting, they saw in the distance a goodly castle, placed near a river in a pleasant valley. Thinking this place would do to spend the night in, they marched thither, but when they came near and dismounted from their tired steeds, they found the gates barred, and every fastening locked, as though for fear of foes. They thought this was done as an insult to them, to prevent their entrance, till the squire blew his horn under the castle wall, which shook with the sound as if it would fall. Then a watchman quickly looked forth from the highest tower, and called loudly to the knights to ask what they required so rudely. They gently answered that they wished to enter. "'Fly, fly, good knights!' he said fly fast away if you love your lives as it is right you should. Fly fast and save yourselves from instant death. You may not enter here, though we would most willingly let you in if only we could. But a thousand enemies rage round us, who have held the castle in siege for seven years, and many good knights who have sought to save us have been slain. As he spoke, A thousand villains, with horrible outcry, swarmed around them from the adjoining rocks and caves, vile wretches, ragged, rude, and hideous, all threatening death, and all armed in a curious manner, some with unwieldy clubs, some with long spears, some with rusty knives, some with staves heated in the fire. They looked like wild bulls, staring with hollow eyes and with stiff hair standing on end. They assailed the knights fiercely, and made them recoil, but when Prince Arthur and Sir Guyon charged again, their strength began to fail, and they were unable to withstand them, for the champions broke on them with such might that they were forced to fly like scattered sheep before the rush of a lion and a tiger. The knights with their shining blades soon broke their rude ranks, and drove them into confusion, hewing and slashing at them, and now, when faced boldly, They found that they were nothing but idle shadows, for, though they seemed bodies, they had really no substance. When they had dispersed this troublesome rabble, Prince Arthur and Guyon came again to the castle gate, and begged entrance where they had been refused before. The report of their danger and conflict having reached the ears of the lady who dwelt there, she came out with a goodly train of squires and ladies to bid them welcome. The lady's name was Alma, she was as beautiful as it was possible to be, in the very flower of her youth yet full of goodness and modesty. She was clad in a robe of lily-white, reaching from her shoulders to the ground. The long, loose train, embroidered with golden pearls, was carried by two fair damsels. Her yellow-golden hair was trimly arranged, and she wore no head-dress except a garland of sweet roses. She entertained the knights nobly, and, when they had rested a little, they begged her as a great favour to show them over her castle. This she consented to do. First she led them up to the castle wall, which was so high that no foe could climb it, and yet was both beautiful and fit for defence. It was not built of brick, nor yet of stone, sand, nor mortar, but of clay. The pity was that such goodly workmanship could not last longer for it must soon turn back to earth. Two gates were placed in this building, the one, Mouth, by which all passed, in far excelling the other in workmanship. When it was locked, no one could pass through, and when it was opened, no man could shut it. Within the barbican sat a porter, the tongue, day and night keeping watch and ward. Nobody could go in or out of the gate without strict scrutiny. Utterers of secrets he debarred, babblers of folly, and those who told tales of wrongdoing. When cause required it, his alarm-bell might be heard far and wide, but never without occasion. Round the porch, on each side, sat sixteen warders, the teeth, all in bright array. Tall yeomen they seemed of great strength, and were ranged ready for fight. Alma then took the knights over the rest of the castle, and showed them so many curious and beautiful things that their minds were filled with wonder for they had never before seen so strange a sight. Presently she brought them back into a beautiful parlour, the heart, hung with rich tapestry, where sat a bevy of fair ladies, the feelings, tastes, etc., amusing themselves in different ways. Some sang, some laughed, some played with straws, some sat idly at ease, but others could not bear to play, all amusement was annoyance to them. This one frowned, that one yawned, a third blushed for shame, another seemed envious or shy, while another gnawed a rush and looked sullen. After that Alma took her guests up to a stately turret, the head, in which two beacons, the eyes, gave light and flamed continually, for they were most marvellously made of living fire, and set in silver sockets, covered with lids that could easily open and shut. In this turret there were many rooms and places, but three chief ones in which dwelt three honorable sages who counseled fair Alma how to govern well. The first of these could foresee things to come, the second could best advise of things present, the third kept things past in memory, so that no time or occasion could arise which one or other of them could not deal with. The first sat in the front of the house, so that nothing should hinder his coming to a conclusion quickly. He made up his mind in advance without listening to reason. He had a keen foresight, and an active brain that was never idle and never rested. His room held a collection of the oddest and queerest things ever seen or imagined. It was filled, too, with flies that buzzed all about, confusing men's eyes and ears with a sound like a swarm of bees. These were idle thoughts and fancies, dreams, visions, soothsayings, prophecies, etc., and all kinds of false tales and lies. The second counsellor was a much older man. He spent all his time meditating over things that had really happened, and in studying law, art, science, and philosophy, so that he had grown very wise indeed. The third counsellor was a very, very aged man. His chamber seemed very ruinous and old, and was therefore at the back of the house, But the walls that upheld it were quite firm and strong. He was half-blind and looked feeble in body, but his mind was still vigorous. All things that had happened, however ancient they were, he faithfully recorded, so that nothing might be forgotten. The names of Alma's three counselors were Imagination, Judgment, and Memory. THE ROCK OF REPROACH AND THE WANDERING ISLANDS The next morning, before it was light, Sir Gion, clad in his bright armor, and accompanied by the palmer in his black dress, started once more on his journey to find the wicked enchantress Acrasia and the Bower of Bliss. At the river ford they found a ferryman, whom Alma had commanded to be there with his well-rigged boat. They went on board, and he immediately launched his bark, and Lady Alma's country was soon left far behind. For two days they sailed without even seeing land. But on the morning of the third day they heard far away a hideous roaring that filled them with terror, and they saw the surges rage so high they feared to be drowned. Then said the boatman, Palmer, steer aright and keep an even course, for we must needs pass yonder way. That is the gulf of greediness, which swallows up all it can devour and is in a constant turmoil. On the other side stood a hideous rock of mighty magnet-stone, whose craggy cliffs were dreadful to behold. Great jagged reefs ran out into the water, and threatened death to all who came near. Yet passers-by were unable to keep away, for trying to escape the devouring jaws of the gulf of greediness they were dashed to pieces on the rock. As they drew near this dreadful spot the ferryman had to put forth all his strength and skill to row them past. On the one hand they saw the horrible gulf, that looked as if it were sucking down all the sea into itself, and on the other hand they saw the perilous rock, on whose sharp cliffs lay the ribs of many shattered vessels, together with the dead bodies of those who had recklessly flung themselves to destruction. The name of the rock was the Rock of Reproach, it was a dangerous and hateful place, to which no fish nor fowl ever came, but only screaming seagulls and cormorants, who sat waiting on the cliff to prey on the unhappy wretches whose extravagant and thriftless living had brought them to ruin. Sir Gion and his companions passed by this dangerous spot in safety, and the ferryman rowed them briskly over the dancing billows. At last, far off, they spied many islands floating on every side among the waves. Then said the knight, Lo, I see the land, so, Sir Palmer, direct your course to it. Not so, said the ferryman, lest we unknowingly run into danger. For those same islands, which now and then appear, are not firm land, nor have they any certain abiding-place. They are straggling plots which run to and fro in the wide waters, wherefore they are called the Wandering Islands, and are to be shunned, for they have drawn many a traveller into danger and distress. Yet from far off they seem very pleasant, both fair and fruitful, the ground spread with soft green grass, and the tall trees covered with leaves and decked with white and red blossoms that might well allure passers by. But whoever once sets his foot on those islands can never recover it, but evermore wanders, uncertain and unsure. Sir Gion and the Palmer listened to their pilot, as seemed fitting, and they passed on their way. Now, said the cautious boatman, when they had left behind them the wandering islands, or listless idleness, we must be careful to take good heed of our safety here, for a perilous passage lies before us. There is a great quicksand, and a whirlpool of hidden danger. Therefore, Sir Palmer, keep a steady hand, for the narrow way lies between them. Scarcely had he spoken, when near at hand they spied the quicksand. It was almost covered with water, but they knew it at once by the waves round it and the discoloured sea. It was called the quicksand of unthriftiness. Passing by, they saw a goodly ship, laden from far with precious merchandise, and well fitted as a ship could be, which, through misadventure or carelessness, had run herself into danger. The mariners and merchants, with much toil, laboured in vain to recover their prize, and to save the rich wares from destruction, but neither toll nor trouble served to free her from the quicksand. On the other side they saw the dangerous pool that was called the Whirlpool of Decay, in which many had haplessly sunk, of whom no memory remained. The circling waters whirled round like a restless wheel, eager to draw the boat into the outer limit of the labyrinth, and to drown the travellers. But the heedful ferryman rowed with all his might, so that they passed by in safety and left the dreaded danger behind. Suddenly they saw, in the midst of the ocean, the surging waters rise like a mountain, and the great sea puffed up, as though threatening to devour everything. The waves came rolling along, and the billows roared in fury, though there was not a breath of wind. At this Sir Gion, the palmer, and the ferryman were greatly afraid, for they knew not what strange horror was approaching. SEA MONSTERS AND LAND MONSTERS Presently they saw a hideous crowd of huge sea monsters, such as terrified any one to behold. Every shape of ugliness and horror was there, water-snakes, and whales, and swordfish, and hippopotamuses, and sharks, and every kind of sea-monster, and they came along in thousands with a dreadful noise and a hollow rumbling roar. No wonder the knight was appalled, for, compared with these, all that we hold dreadful on earth were but a trifle. Fear nothing, then said the palmer for these creatures that look like monsters are not so in reality. They are only disguised into these fearful shapes by the wicked enchantress to terrify us, and to prevent our continuing our journey. Then, lifting up his magic staff, he smote the sea, which immediately became calm, and all the make-believe monsters fled to the bottom of the ocean. Free from that danger, the travelers kept on their way and as they went they heard a pitiful cry as of someone wailing and weeping at last on an island they saw a beautiful maiden who seemed in great sorrow and who kept calling to them for help directly gion heard her he bade the palmer steer straight to her rescue but the latter knowing better said fair sir do not be displeased if i disobey you for it would be a bad thing to listen to her for really there is nothing the matter it is only a trick to entrap you." The knight was guided by his advice, and the ferryman held steadily straight on his course. The next temptation they had to face was of a different kind. They came to a lovely bay sheltered on the one side by a steep hill, and on the other by a high rock, so that between them was a still and pleasant haven. In this bay lived five mermaids, who could sing in the sweetest manner possible but the only use they made of their skill in melody was to allure travellers, whom, when they had got hold of, they killed. So now to Guion, as he passed, they began to sing their sweetest tunes, greeting him as the mightiest knight that had ever fought in battle, and bidding him to turn his rudder into the quiet bay, where his storm-beaten vessel might safely ride. This is the port of rest from troublous toll, they sang. THE WORLD in FROM PAIN AND WEARISOME TURMOIL. The rolling sea and the waves breaking on the rock mingled with their singing, and the wind whistled in harmony. The sound so delighted Gion that he bade the boatman row slowly to let him listen to their melody. But the palmer wisely counseled him not to do this, and so they got safely past the danger and soon after they saw, in the distance, the land to which they were directing their course. Then suddenly a thick fog came down upon them, hiding the cheerful daylight, and making the whole world seem a confused mass. They were much dismayed at this, not knowing which way to steer in the darkness, and fearing that they would fall into some hidden danger. To add to their confusion, they were attacked by a flock of horrible birds, which flew screaming round them, beating at them with their wicked wings. Owls, and ravens, and bats, and screech-owls. Yet the travelers would not stay because of these, but went straight forward, the ferryman rowing, while the palmer kept a firm hand on the rudder, till at last the weather began to clear, and the land showed plainly. Then the palmer warned Sir Gion to have his armor in readiness, for peril would soon assail him. The knight obeyed, and when the boat reached the shore, he and the palmer stepped out, fully armed and carefully prepared against every danger. They had not gone far before they heard a hideous bellowing, and a pack of wild beasts rushed forward as if to devour them. But when they came near, the palmer lifted up his wonderful staff, and immediately they were quelled and shrank back trembling. Passing these, Sir Gion and the palmer soon came to the place the knight was seeking, the object of his long and toilsome quest, the home of the wicked enchantress, the Bower of Bliss. THE BOWER OF BLISS It was a lovely spot, a place adorned in the most perfect way by which art could imitate nature everything sweet and pleasing, or that the daintiest fancy could devise, was gathered here in lavish profusion. A light fence enclosed it, and a rich ivory gate, wonderfully carven, stood open to all those that came thither. In the porch sat a tall, handsome porter, whose looks were so pleasant that he seemed to entice travellers to him, but it was only to deceive them to their own ruin. He was the keeper of the garden, and his name was Pleasure, he was decked with flowers, and by his side was set a great bowl of wine, with which he pleased all newcomers. He offered it to Sir Guillaume, but the latter refused his idle courtesy, and overthrew the bowl. Passing through the gate they beheld a large and spacious plain, strewn on every side with delights. The ground was covered with green grass, and made beautiful with all kinds of lovely flowers. The skies were always bright, and the air soft and balmy, No storm or frost ever came to harm the tender blossoms, neither scorching heat, nor piercing cold to hurt those who dwelt therein. Gion wondered much at the loveliness of that sweet place, yet would not suffer any of its delights to allure him, but passed straight through and still looked forward. Presently he came to a beautiful arbor, fashioned out of interlacing boughs and branches. This was arched over with a clustering vine richly laden with bunches of luscious grapes. Some were deep purple, like the hyacinth, some like rubies laughing red, some like emeralds, not yet well ripened, and there were others of burnished gold. They almost broke down the branches with their weight, and seemed to offer themselves to be freely gathered by the passers-by. In the arbor sat a finely dressed lady. She held in her left hand a golden cup and with her right hand she gathered the ripe fruit, and squeezed the juice of the grapes into the cup. It was her custom to give a draught of this wine to every stranger that passed, but when she offered it to Guillaume to taste, he took the cup out of her hand, and flung it to the ground, so that it was broken and all the wine spilt. Excess, for that was the lady's name, was very angry at this, but she could not withstand the knight and was obliged to let him pass, and he went on heedless of her displeasure. Then before his eyes appeared a most lovely paradise, abounding in every sort of pleasure, rainbow-colored flowers, lofty trees, shady dells, breezy mountains, rustling groves, crystal streams. It was impossible to tell which was art and which nature, they were so cunningly mingled. Both combined made greater the beauty of the other, and adorned this garden with an endless variety. In the midst of all stood a fountain made of the most precious materials on earth, so pure and bright that one could see the silver flood running through every channel. It was wrought all over with curious carving, and above all was spread a trail of ivy of the purest gold, colored like nature, so that any one who saw it would surely think it was real ivy. Numberless little streams continually welled out of this fountain, and formed a little lake, through the shallow water of which one could see the bottom, all paved with shining jasper. Then, at last, Sir Gion and the palmer drew near to the bower of bliss, so called by the foolish favorites of the wicked enchantress. Now, sir, consider well, said the palmer, for here is the end of all our travel. Here dwells Acrasia, whom we must surprise, or else she will slip away and laugh at our attempt. Soon, They heard the most lovely melody such as might never be heard on mortal ground. It was almost impossible to say what kind of music it was, for all that is pleasing to the ear they are joined in harmony, the joyous singing of birds, angelic voices, silver-sounding instruments, murmuring waters, and the whispering wind. And through it all they heard the singing of one voice, sweeter than all the others. But in spite of the lovely music heard on every side, Sir Gion and the palmer never left their path. They kept on through many groves and thickets, till at last they came in sight of the wicked enchantress herself. She lay half-sleeping on a bed of roses, clad in a veil of silk and silver. All round were many fair ladies and boys singing sweetly. Not far off was her last victim, a gallant-looking youth over whom she had cast an evil spell. His brave sword and armor hung idly on a tree, and he lay sunk in a heavy slumber, forgetful of all the noble deeds in which he had once delighted. Sir and the palmer cautiously drew near, then, suddenly, rushed forward, and flung over Acrasia a net which the skilful palmer had made for the occasion. All her attendants immediately fled in terror. Acrasia tried all her arts and crafty wiles to set herself free, but in vain the net was so cunningly woven neither guile nor force could disentangle her then sir gion broke down without pity all the pleasant bowers and the stately palace and trampled down the gardens and burnt the banqueting hall so that nothing was left of the beautiful place to tempt other people to ruin as for Accrazia, they led her away captive bound with adamantine chains for nothing else would keep her safe And when they came back to the place where they had met the wild beasts, these again flew fiercely at them, as if they would rescue their mistress. But the palmer soon pacified them. Then Gion asked what was the meaning of these beasts that lived there. These seeming beasts are really men whom the enchantress has thus transformed, replied the palmer. Now they are turned into these hideous figures in accordance with their bad and ugly minds. A sad end of an ignoble life. And a mournful result of excess and pleasure, said the knight. But, Palmer, if it may so please you, let them be returned to their former state. So the Palmer struck them with his staff, and immediately they were turned into men. Very queer and ill at ease they looked. Some were inwardly ashamed, and some were angry to see the Lady Acrasia captive, but one in particular, who had lately been a hog, Grill by name, loudly lamented and abused the knight for bringing him back from the shape of a hog into that of a man then said gion see how low a man can sink to forget so soon the excellence in which he was created and to choose rather to be a beast without intelligence worthless men delight in base things said the palmer let grill be grill and have his hoggish mind but let us depart hence while wind and weather serve. So Sir Gion, having overthrown the power of the wicked enchantress, went back to the house of Alma, where he had left Prince Arthur. The captive Acrasia he sent under a strong guard to the court of the fairy queen, to be presented to Queen Gloriana as a proof that he had accomplished his hard task. But he himself travelled forth with Prince Arthur, to make further trial of his strength, and to seek fresh adventures. End of section 10. Recording by Maya Hansen.